Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Chizinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in a particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chizinski. My fact this week is that the reason Merlin isn't called Merdin is to avoid confusion with a 12th century word for feces. That's amazing. Oh. Yeah. So the wizard Merlin uh, of Sword in the Stone fame, he would have been called Merdin. And so the story is that uh, Merlin was originally created in the form we know him by Geoffrey of Monmouth, uh, who was a sort of a Norman Welsh guy in the 12th century. And he based the character of Merlin on this Welsh medieval mythical figure called Merdin, M-Y-R-D-D-I-N. But because he has sort of Norman origins, because he was from the nobility probably, and so a lot of people were speaking French in his social circles, it was thought that Merdin would be really easily confused with Merd, which is the same as it is today, which is uh, the word for poo. Mm. Feels like he's missed a chance for a lot of puns and, and poo jokes, doesn't it? By changing that name, he's lost a lot of his joke material. Yes. It does. Yeah, he could have been the Chaucer of his time. <laughs> yeah. I just don't know if that was the style he was going for. Okay. Do you know that in the 17th century, the word "merd" was English? Yes. Really? Weird, isn't it? Yeah. It was just a common English word for poo, merd, and then it just kind of disappeared in the 18th century. And now it's kind of, everyone knows it's, it's just a French word. Speaking of people whose names meant uh, feces... <laughs> Mm. Um, Montezuma of the Aztecs had a nephew uh, whose name meant plenty of excrement (laughs) what was his name? it was Cuidahuac and they have uh, they had um, uh, guacamole didn't they which means um, testicle sauce sauce. testicle sauce yeah wow yeah and avocado means testicles as well exactly yes other things that mean testicles orchid Mm. Orchid, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I have another Merlin uh, fact, yeah, probably yeah. my favourite Merlin fact. Mm-hmm. Um, he was sorted into a house at Hogwarts. Neither of these things is, is real. Exactly. <laughs> this, I thought someone might pick me up on this, yep. but neither of these things are real. So, okay. so uh, on Pottermore, the big JK Rowling website, it was revealed that Merlin was a student of the school of Hogwarts and he was sorted into one of the four schools and he was sorted into Slytherin. So Merlin is a, a Slytherin. Wow. Mm. This is weird because you said yesterday that you'd found an amazing thing on Merlin that you love. It's the best and, thing I've ever found, yeah. Well, so I was reading about him later on and I found something and I thought, oh, I bet this is what Dan's found. Um, it's so interesting. And this really shows how disconnected you and I are. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing I thought is that um, he's... So Merlin in the original myth is alleged to have been buried in this particular place at sort of a crossover between two rivers. So the River Tweed and a little uh, stream called Powsail Burn. And in the legends, it was written that um, if ever the Powsail Burn and the Tweed were to meet at the place of Merlin's final resting place, as in if these two rivers were to suddenly collide, then England and Scotland would have the same monarch. And this prediction is in a medieval text. And 
on the exact day that James VI of Scotland and James I of England was crowned in 1603, uh, the banks of the River Tweed broke and it flooded into the Powsale Burn and they met. No. Isn't that weird? I smell PR (laughs) happening here. (laughs) (laughs) It might be that I didn't check how often the banks broke and it might be that they just broke every single winter, but I definitely know they broke in 1603 on that precise day. According to whom? A 17th century Malcolm Tucker character. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of PR, though, I was talking uh, to Greg Jenner and Greg Jenner, who's been on our show a number of times. Historian. uh, Historian, Horrible Histories official chief nerd. And um, he was telling me about a publicity stunt as well. So this was back in the 12th century. Uh, The Glastonbury Abbey burned down and all the pilgrims stopped going to it. Uh, So it was soon after that that the abbot found... Uh, the body of King Arthur in his grave. And suddenly all the pilgrims started returning en masse. And so Greg was saying that this is one of the earliest examples of a publicity stunt where yeah. they just needed people to return. So King Arthur is one of the original publicity yeah, stunts. Yeah, I think what happened was it burned down and they were like to Henry II, oh, can we have some more money to build it? And he's like, oh, we don't have any. But maybe, just maybe, if you look closely, you might be able to find the body of King Arthur. <laughs> and they went, okay, we'll have a look. And sure enough, the very next day they found it. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a That's weird coincidence, isn't it? in such a short time as well incredible okay so this is something that I thought you would like Dan so the um, Holy Grail yes uh, which is kind of an Arthurian legend as well Uh, it's based probably on an adaptation of an old Welsh story about the cauldron of Anwyn okay which was owned by a guy called Bran the Blessed no yeah and if you, he was a giant a Welsh giant called Bran the Blessed wow and if you go onto his Wikipedia page it says do not confuse him with Brian Blessed <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing you can understand why you would yeah that's what? incredible do we know any more about him or is it just well, that. there's all sorts on his Wikipedia oh, yeah. page, but I didn't read any of it. Wow. <laughs> and it's, he was real, was he? Or? No, no, he was a giant. Oh, my God. But then is, <laughs> is Brian Blessed <laughs> real, real, really? This is the point, I mean... this point I'm making. Who appears more real? Also, do you know what the name of the sword in the stone was? Uh, I'm going to say Excalibur, and you're looking at me like yes, it's wrong. It's wrong, I'm afraid. According to Mallory and according to basically everyone, um, the sword of the stone doesn't have a name. And then Arthur loses it. And then he gets Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake, which is a different oh, sword. Okay. Oh. Who eventually traps Merlin for all of eternity. Uh, That's how Merlin meets his demise. It was In um, some stone as well, right? Yeah. Everything's always been stuck in stone in these days. Yeah. They didn't have it was carbon dangerous. fiber. They didn't have plastics. They had to, they yeah, had yeah. to use what they had, basically. Yeah. Yeah. All they had was stone. <laughs> Um, actually, just on Arthurian legend, yeah. I think, I don't know if Andy will know this, but I had no idea about this. And I thought it was really interesting. So Arthurian legends are referred to as the matter of Britain. Uh, so this is this whole body of medieval literature, which is called the matter of Britain. And there are three matters in medieval times. There's the matter of Britain, the matter of France and the matter of Rome. And these are just the three big bits of literature. So matter of Britain wow. is Arthur. The matter of France is the, um, the stories of um, Charlemagne. And the matter of Rome is like all awesome Roman ancient literature. So the matter of Rome is absolutely winning. And the guy who named these was a French poet who was called Bo- Bodil. And I-, I was thinking when I was reading this, oh, cool, we are one of the three great tripods of medieval literature. And his description of them was that France is character. the matter of France is characterized by voir or truth. Rome is characterized by sageness or wisdom or uh, knowledge. And the matter of Britain is characterized by being vain et plaisant. Uh, to mean frivolous, pleasant, but completely false. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Funny you say wise, um, because that's where the word wizard comes from. 
Is it? Yeah. yeah. Wow. The, the whiz part comes from wise. And I think mm. the idea was that maybe in the olden days, wise people could see the future. I think that might oh, be it. Okay. Yeah. Can I quickly talk about modern day wizards? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, pagans and druids, uh, those are the sort of modern day torch holders of the the whole wizarding world i would say and uh interesting news in the world of pagan news which is that now pagans there's about a million in the uk 300 of whom are in prison prisoned pagans prisoned wizards are now allowed to have a wand in jail that's a new (laughs) ruling that's just been made because it's respecting their religious beliefs so what they have to do is they can go into the yard and get some twigs and bring them back (laughs) and then they kind of just pimp up the twigs a bit and then that's their wand that they're allowed to have i think i might start a new religion which has a skeleton key as a holy (laughs) symbol (laughs) this article says they've toned down all of the rituals because what they're also in theory should be having is a flaming torch with them uh as part of the religion and they've said we're cool to let the flaming torch bit go we can have the twigs how many was are in prison 300 300 wow. yeah are they all in the same no it's not <laughs> <laughs> i don't actually think it does show respect for their religion because what basically you're saying when you tell wizards that they're allowed to have their wand in prison is that you <laughs> definitely don't believe their wand has any capacity to help them whatsoever. <laughs> um i have one last thing which is about modern day wizards which is there is a school in california which is open and it's been open for 10 years it's the world's only registered wizard academy it's got 735 students uh half of whom will be in prison in 10 years <laughs> <laughs> uh and um they it was set up by a guy called oberon zell ravenheart and he himself is a wizard but the school is up and running you can go to their website um they have like latest news is that the school is now it's called the gray school of wizardry they're now on second life so you can attend it on second life as well they have a list of their staff. It includes people called Silvermane, Swift Rabbit, Frogs Dancing, Earth Drum, MA, Apollonius, BS, MS, PhD. BS, BS is yep. a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Silverlock. And so, yeah, you can, uh, you Were can all now... these people just, they started out as accountants or postmen and they got so much mockery for their names that they ended up being forced <laughs> into the wizarding profession, do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I don't I... know who does it. Um, um, one more uh, modern wizard oh, yeah. who's great is the real King Arthur. Who's, who's... back. This is a guy who was formerly called John Rothwell before he realised that he was King Arthur a few years ago. He's the battle chieftain of the Council of British Druid Orders. There was quite a good interview with him in Vice, and uh, the Vice guy asked him things like, how hard was it to pull the sword from the stone? To which he answered, very, very, very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds legit. (laughs) They tried to trick him with that trick question, (laughs) but he got it straight away. Not today. (laughs) No, hang on, hang on. The whole point of the sword in the stone was that it comes out easily <laughs> if you're the king of England. Oh, no. They did trick him. <laughs> they did trick him. Okay, and it's time to move on to fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that tea leaves sometimes flow upstream from the cup to the pot. I don't if, believe if I, if I was ever going to call nonsense on anything, never mind King Arthur being reincarnated. <laughs> This is. This sounds amazing. It is incredible. It was discovered by um, by a guy called Sebastian Bianchini in 2008. He was at the University of Havana, and he was pouring hot water from a pot which was just water into a cup which had um, some tea leaves, some mate tea leaves. And as he poured it, 
he had his nice cup of tea and then he looked in the pot and there were tea leaves there and he didn't understand why and he went to a physicist at the University of Havana and they kind of did some experiments but then they kind of they never published the findings because they thought everyone would laugh at them. Um, <laughs> but it seems true. It seems like it's a real thing. Hang on. If you, this is one of those things that you could actually demonstrate. Like you could just demonstrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would people laugh? But they think probably it was a trick and he had some tea leaves in there all along. So like a something. Darren Brown style. You, you'd never be able again. to make any tea. It would Because the leaves <laughs> would constantly be fleeing yeah. into the pot. <laughs> so it's not all of them. It's some of them. And it's uh, due to this thing called the Marangoni effect, which is a mixture of surface tension and a little bit of capillary action. And surface tension, basically, we're talking about pure water and not pure water. And the um, the particles want to travel up towards the purer water. And people didn't think it could happen with something as big as tea leaves, but actually it can happen. Um, and, yeah. How big just, a leaf are we talking? We're talking, uh, this stuff is called mate tea. And it's usually like little, they're like almost like little bits of sawdust, aren't they? Yeah, yeah it's really small. It's very crumbled right. up. It's smaller than normal wow. tea leaves. Yeah. Um, but actually, um, when things are on quite small uh, scale, they can do things that don't normally happen in for bigger things. So, um, like, for instance, capillary action only really works for really small kind of t- thin tubes, which is that water goes up the tube against gravity. Yeah. And that wouldn't happen on a normal tube, but it happens with very thin tubes. And that's how plants can get the water from the ground into their leaves. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, did you read the co- guy who commented, someone who commented at the bottom of this study? And uh, he said, this article reminded me of when I once made the mistake of expectorating into a toilet. And the result was an immediate acrid taste in my mouth. Apparently, the chemicals in there had travelled several feet up my stream of saliva. Mm, but um, yeah, that was that was a theory. Unbelievably that, disgusting. It is quite disgusting. <laughs> but but the scientists acknowledged that that could be a possibility, although said that it might be quite unlikely that chemicals could flow that way backwards. So, are we saying that when you go to the loo, in some ways, the loo goes to you? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's not very much. It's not all of it. Uh, It's not like you come out of the toilet and the toilet is completely empty (laughs) of water. (laughs) I'm so bloated after that. (laughs) Well, isn't there that thing that all men are scared of, that Amazonian fish, where the rumour has always been that um, it will swim up your urine stream? We should quickly explain that, shouldn't we? Candiru is like a mini little catfish. I think it's in the catfish family. And um, the theory is you would be in the water and you'd be urinating and it gets attracted to the um, urine stream and then it follows it and then goes into your penis and um, sticks its spines out and gets stuck there and can be extremely painful. And there's been one or two stories in the medical literature of it happening, but most people think probably it's not true. Yeah, and I have to say, you say a little fish. I've seen one in the Natural History Museum. That's not a little fish. That is... Remember when we went to? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was. I mean, no, but that's big. Like, it's no, not. No, it like wasn't. A... You know that whale in the in the front lobby. Yeah, the, no, it wasn't that one. Oh, okay, <laughs> then I misread the label. But <laughs> no, it's about an inch or two. So yeah, I know, but it. still, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. the idea of that going a up a stream, which you know, it's not. It's it's like a it's like a teapot stream yeah, urine. Yeah. It's not a thick. Well, mine's not like a thick. <laughs> <laughs> this was apparently the only means of preventing it, according to one piece of nineteenth-century medical literature. Because this rumor has been around for about two hundred years that they'll do this. The only means of preventing it from reaching your bladder, where it causes inflammation and ultimately death, is to instantly amputate the penis. This isn't when you get your visa to go to the Amazon. You have to have it done. As a preventative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just a shot in your That's arm right. and let's just let's just get that off, shall we? 
I'm pretty sure that this has completely been debunked as an idea. The Kandiru? Yeah, going, going from you standing on the bank yes. and having a pit. So, so the idea so... is it could, let's say, it could possibly happen while you're bathing. Exactly. Perhaps, mm. and it just follows the warmth of the water or whatever. But the idea that you're standing <laughs> on the side of a river, peeing down, and then it jumps like a salmon <laughs> into your penis. Yeah. That, I'm pretty sure that could that doesn't happen. Um, I was reading about the first ever book written about tea. It's an old Chinese text, and it's the first ever collection of uh, a book on tea. It's called Cha Ching. <laughs> it genuinely no. is. Cha, the Chinese word, and yeah. Ching, which uh, I actually don't know what that word is. but Oh, but the I Ching is a fortune-telling book, isn't it? Yes, so okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe it was fortune-telling through tea leaves book. You know uh, India, how they, what the mythology of how tea came about in India is? What? Did it get found by a goat herd, or is that coffee, maybe? No, so it was uh, about 1,900 years ago, and it was a priest named Bodhidharma, and uh, he was um, he was trying to connect with Zen Buddhism, and the idea that he was going to do that was seven years sleepless contemplation of Buddha. He found himself in the fifth year getting quite drowsy <laughs> <laughs> and needed to cure that, and so he quickly grabbed some leaves off a tree and started chewing on them, and he thought, this is fantastic. How and that just about. got him through that extra two years. It really perked him up for that final push. <laughs> <laughs> and, in, and in China, they have an idea that it was an emperor uh, called Nunxian, who was, um, as well as being the emperor, he's a scholar and herbalist. And while he was out, out in the field on maybe, I, I guess, a walk or something, um, he was having a hot cup of water and some leaves blew into his cup. And yeah. he smelt yeah. it and went, oh, that smells quite nice. Yeah. I <laughs> love it. It's uh, so interesting. Uh, pretty much everything has an origin myth where it's discovered by it's, it's well, it's by all bugbear, isn't it? Well, it just seems to be that humans have this innate uh, preference for that kind of discovery rather than someone who really knew what they were doing and had studied the field and was yes. working really hard on it for years. Because we yeah. all want to believe that we could do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the British introduced tea to India, which sounds lunatic, Ooh. or rather they popularised it in India. Okay. So uh, it was already native, but it was not a thing that was grown in large quantities there it yeah. wasn't big but then uh, in the 19th century britain needed an alternative to the chinese tea monopoly and so that's why india is now this great tea nation because we got it in the 17th century i think was it charles ii's wife i think came over and um, brought tea and then everyone thought it was like this terrible well there was a lot of misogyny and xenophobia basically it was a foreign thing that women drank and also, it was it gave women a cha- a reason for um, getting together, and and men obviously thought that was a terrible. Yeah, it's very much the it's the Lambrini of its day, basically. <laughs> 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 Lambrini was discovered actually when uh, a man was back. walking across a field with some carbonated water, <laughs> <laughs> and a passing bird dropped a rotting grape into it. <laughs> So can I just bring it back to your main headline fact for yeah. a second? Mm. So you haven't seen a video of this being done? No. I couldn't find one. What, surely we should be doing that. We should be filming that or getting someone listening to like, let's see this. Let's see. Okay, so it's specifically mate tea, yep. which is this South American tea, which is, um, it's quite a big thing over there, isn't it? You've it's been to massive. South America, Yeah, you? and I've got a few friends who live there and it's pretty much all they do. I, I'm amazed to get any work done there. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a really strict ritual around mate tea, which is that uh, the way you drink it is you fill up a, a kettle of 
boiling water and then you pour it into this onto all these herbs and you keep on topping it up and up so you can keep drinking your one mate tea for hours but two very important things you have to do and people get extremely angry if you don't do them when it's usually you hand it around so it's a real sociable thing it's a very much a community thing drinking mate and you when you hand it to someone you have to look them in the eye because that's part of your saying i'm giving this to you mm. and you have to give it to them with a straw pointing towards them so it comes with this metal straw yeah. and if you don't give it to them with a straw pointing you are um you're kicked out of the country wow. oh. no, that it sounds it? like it's from bitter experience <laughs> 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 um just on tea so I think a lot of people think that you shouldn't reboil a kettle. If you boil the water once, mm-hmm. you should use that to make tea, and then the water's sort of no good for making tea after that, and if you reboil it, it's bad. And the theory is that all the oxygen leaches out of the water, mm-hmm. but the thing is, when you boil a kettle, it leaches off the first time you boil a kettle. So whenever you make a tea, you don't have a choice. You have to make it without uh, all that lovely see. bonus yeah. oxygen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you know what I do now? If I have a shirt that needs ironing, I start boiling a kettle, and as it reaches <laughs> boiling point, I take the lid off, and yeah. all the steam comes up. But because you've taken the lid off, it mm. never fully boils, so the kettle's confused. It thinks it's still boiling, so it keeps <laughs> going. So I steam my entire shirt, and it steams really quickly. You can do a whole shirt in about a minute. Uh, I haven't done it on my shirt today. I'm d- I'm Everyone's noticing. Shirt, I, didn't have time. It's very I didn't have time. It's so creased today. <laughs> <laughs> Listening at home, Dan is massive. Is one wrinkle now, basically. <laughs> um, why don't we put tea bags in the kettle as it boils? That's always confused me. Because someone might want coffee. <laughs> why would you put tea bags in the kettle? Yeah. Because I noticed that the British love to leave in a in a pot tea and let it mull, and I reckon the intense boiling that's going on would absolutely make it just the most intense tea. You could rewrite the book on tea. You could be Cha-Ching, the sequel. (laughs) There was a famous quote by Einstein where he said that his best ever idea was to put um, to put an egg in his soup while it was cooking so that his egg and his soup could cook at the same time. See, me and Einstein are on the same (laughs) thinking level here. Except you're shoving a shirt into a kettle which has got a tea bag in it. Over it. Over it. I'm holding it over. All Dan needs in his house is one kettle and it does everything. (laughs) (laughs) If I need to make some toast, I just put it in the kettle. (laughs) I don't need a hot water bottle. I just hug the kettle (laughs) until I sleep. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. And my fact this week is that butchers in ancient Egypt wore high heels. Okay. Yep. And I th- think I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's correct to say that they. That's the oldest example of high heels that we have mm, in why, history. Why would they wear high heels? Because apparently it was to do with the slaughtering of the animals. So when they were killing uh, all the animals, um, they would find that the floor would be blood drenched. They didn't want to get their feet completely stained. So the high heels just made it a more pleasant mm. walking uh, process for them. So yeah, and, and but then people did wear high heels back then outside of butchers, but I think butchers were known specifically that was the footwear of the job. Yeah, it wasn't you saw someone in heels and you went, oh, that's a butcher. No, exactly. But <laughs> you might for a second think you'd make a good butcher. Because uh, yeah. you know how to rock those heels. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And men and women wore them, obviously, um, back then. Well, I thought that they had been invented in the 9th century right uh in persia yeah i thought that as well which is where and the reason they were invented there i think it might have been a separate invention was so that men could fire arrows while on horseback it was wow uh, persian archers 
And basically, it's, if you wedge your feet into the stirrups using a pair of high heels, you can stand up in the stirrups and you can yeah. fire more steadily from there while yeah. you're riding a horse. You know the, uh, the Persians are responsible for a huge period of terrible art in Egypt. What? Yeah, so the Persians, the Persians took over at about 525 BC, um, or at least during 525 BC, they were they were running Egypt. And so what they did was all the artists who were in Egypt, who were doing all the all of the uh, caskets, all the wall art, and so on, um, they basically deported them. So oh. it just left Egypt with terrible artists, and you can see all these examples, <laughs> this whole period of just bad art where people are trying to now be the artists, and they're just getting it really just slightly cartoonishly wrong. Are you sure they? didn't just go there they wanted to give the egyptians a bad rep so the persians did a whole bunch of kind of fakes really crappy drawings <laughs> <laughs> look how bad these guys are they also played board games i, I didn't know that and yeah. tutankhamun there's even uh, that period those drawings where you can just see them playing board games really yeah what were they, do we know what yeah what we do we know the yeah. names of the games we don't know the rules they still debate the exact rules over some of the some of the games but there's like jackal versus dog there's a there's a game that has a name Sharknado versus <laughs> Uh, should we do a bit on butchers before we move on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so according to the Butchers Guild website that I was reading, um, the earliest um, kind of butchery that they have was from a Florida sinkhole from 12,000 years ago, and it was a butchered giant sloth. Whoa. Yeah. And butchered also, what? So it's hanging in a little shop window somewhere in a sinkhole. <laughs> <laughs> How do we know it's been butchered? Down. I reckon they will have found bits of... Um, cutting on the bones wow um, because if you have a butchered carcass you can see where they've cut deliberately to get this pe- piece of meat away yeah um, but it didn't say on the website so i'm not 100 sure and also in that uh, sinkhole they found a sharpened stick and a tortoise do we think the tortoise was the one that butchered the sloth <laughs> <laughs> um did you know i didn't realize that one of the theories of how Tutankhamun died was that he got eaten by a hippopotamus. Yeah, yeah, that's an actual thing. <laughs> no, this I is... don't think that is right, is it? Uh, well, no, no, that he got we... killed by... Uh... He got killed, but he didn't get yeah. eaten because he's buried in a very unconventional way, so he's missing... <laughs> <laughs> was a massive hippopotamus on the end of his body. <laughs> um, no, he's just he's missing his heart. It looks like some, something's committed some kind of horrific injury to him whereby it's consumed his heart. The they removed the heart They put always. them in jars. I, Unless there's something where his heart used to be saying the hippo took this. I think he, he was embalmed without his heart anywhere so usually the heart would be okay. there and the heart was missing and it's of the obvious conclusion you jump to if the heart's missing is that a hippo took it. What sort of freaky vampire hippo is this that can with surgical precision remove someone's heart and so doesn't I think go back for more? Like the evil guy from Temple of Doom yeah. but a hippo. Look, this is um, one of the ancient Egyptian board games they play was Hungry Hungry Hippos. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it does, the source does specify a handful of Egyptologists believe this. So. I've seen it in a bunch of places. Yeah, yeah. it's thought because um, hunting big animals like that was popular and there are pictures of Katun Kamuna doing things like that in his tomb. And um, he, that's it's a theory, guys. It's a theory. Um, I just have one last thing I was reading about laundrymen of ancient Egypt. They would take all the clothes um, from people's houses and they would leave little tokens that they would draw the picture of the clothes they took 
Whoa. leave it with you. So it's like, we have these items. Make sure that they come back. Okay. What they, did they do after amazing. all of Egypt's good artists were removed? You <laughs> 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 couldn't tell which item they'd drawn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you, they would go down to the Nile and they would wash all their clothes. And one of the hazards of being a laundryman back in ancient Egypt was that it was likely that you were going to be eaten by a crocodile <laughs> because they hung around on the banks amazing. so much. Oh, wow. They must have been delighted when kettles were invented. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't see any creased shirts in any hieroglyphs, do you? <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that there is a fish called the Amazonian wood-eating catfish, but it is unable to digest wood. (laughs) Okay. It is a catfish, though. It is a catfish, yeah. Uh, It was discovered a few years ago, in about 2010, and um, we've known for a while that there are loads of catfish which sort of suck wood um <laughs> the kandiru um, they're called uh, sucker mouth armored catfish and they they scrape wood with their teeth to get uh, organic material off it so okay. they like algae and bacteria and things that are found clinging to wood uh, in rivers but this new fish it literally eats the wood and it, di- uh, it digests the biological material on the wood and it living inside the wood. Mm. And then it excretes the wood four hours later. So it, it, so it has the most painful bathroom visit about yeah. twice a day, is yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Um, so, and it absorbs all the organic products and the tiny animals that live on the wood. And it has special spoon-shaped teeth as well. And it's yeah. just, I think it's amazing that this thing eats wood and then gets yeah. rid of all the wood. Apparently... Um, it's really hard to fish for them because they don't go for bait. But that a lot of fishing rods are made out of wood, so you could hold on to the maggot and throw the Go the opposite way, you're yeah. right. Yeah. Do you know how you do catch them? You listen out for them because they make this rasping noise, which is them going on the wood that they're eating. Yeah. But this is the weird thing. We can't digest wood. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason for this, I might be wrong about this, but I think it is that we don't have organisms in our gut which produce the enzyme cellulase, right? Mm. So wood, wood pulp is cellulose. And if you have the enzyme cellulase, you can digest it. Yeah. So my question is, if we did inject somebody with those organisms, yep. which do produce cellulase, would we be able to digest trees? I think you would. You'd be able to do it just mm-hmm. in like a probiotic. You wouldn't have to inject it into anyone. Why, why have we done this? I bet you've got... You know those gross-looking smoothies you sometimes bring to the office? I bet there's cellulase in one of those. Yeah. Try chewing on a twig after that. Yeah, I think, really, you could do, but actually it's easier to get the calories out of a cream cake than it is to get it out of a stick, even if you do have cellulase. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Is there any species of tree that we do eat? I know broccoli is not a tree, but it kind of looks no, like one. But we did used to eat bark. Did we? Um, well, our ancestors used to eat bark, so they discovered this quite <laughs> recently. Um, so gorillas and also chimps sometimes chew on bark. Okay, so our really far back ancestors. Super far, before humans <laughs> right. were actually a thing. It was uh, another hom- hominid. I think it was the Australopithecus sediba, uh, which is a two million year old ancestor of humans. And they recently found some with bark stuck in its teeth. And so, yeah, we used to chew on that. This is another Tutankhamun hippo heart mystery, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> that sounds more like they invented the toothpick. Yeah. <laughs> what a brilliant rival theory. You should write to the archaeologists. Some tribes might use sticks for cleaning their teeth, wouldn't they? I think they uh, yeah. have things you can chew on. Yeah. Uh, isn't cinnamon made out of bark? Mm. Cinnamon sticks. Don't we get aspirin from powdered bark? Do we? 
Originally, yeah. So, so we're yeah. eating a lot more wood than we realised. <laughs> I like, you know, ants can't, uh, most ants can't really digest solid food because they've got that really tiny waist. They've got like smaller waist than Marilyn Monroe. So they, they have to liquefy their food before they digest it. Uh, oh, really? I didn't yeah. know any of that. What? Uh, ants can't digest lumps of food because... I, no, I can imagine they can't eat like a donut because it's bigger <laughs> than them. But are you saying they can't have any kind of solid sort They liquefy it. So the, and the way that they liquefy it is they feed it to their larva first. So their larvae um, can digest solid food, can eat solid oh, food. So wow. what ants do is they have the larvae and they will put it into their larvae's mouths and the larvae will eat this food and their uh, stomachs will, or their bodies will release the enzymes required to break it down into a more palatable smoothie type form and then they'll regurgitate it and give it to their parents. So they're using the larvae like a blender. Yeah. And also, <laughs> and also like a plate. Because some of the larvae, they don't, the larvae don't even eat it. Some of the larvae just secrete the enzymes onto the top of their stomachs. So the worker ants come back with solid food, drops the bit of food onto the larvae's stomach. The larvae knows it just has to lie there, let it digest. And then the ant comes back a bit later and eats it off the larvae's stomach. Catfish stuff? Yeah. 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 Um, so catfish, can, um, they can hunt in the dark by detecting the changes in acidity in water because their whiskers have got this special kind of sensor for acid. So you can tell if something's a bit more acid or a bit less acid, and they can find things using that. Just one more thing on a a really cool species of wood-eating creature Mm -hmm. that's also underwater is a crab. So there's this kind of crab, which the only thing it can eat is wood, and yet it lives at the bottom of the ocean, so it can live up to 1.5 kilometres underwater well, right in the ocean there are not many floor. trees? Not a lot of trees at all. So wow. there is nothing in its habitat that grows that it can possibly eat, and it has to rely on wood falling into the water. Yeah, I mean, that is... Yeah, it is mad that you've grow, grown up in an environment where there's nothing for you to eat. Mm. Imagine how annoying that would be. So, so they have to literally just wait for trunks to find their way and then suddenly that's their meal as a community for the next yeah and often trees break down as they get further and further into the sea so you'll get little scraps of wood or a shipwreck yeah Yeah. some of them do live on shipwrecks yeah oh that That must be bliss when a huge shipwreck (laughs) titanic was the best moment in their history really made out of wood (laughs) (laughs) there's an upside down catfish what what uh it's they're found in central congo and they're notable because we, they swim upside down because they feed on insects on the surface of the water. So they kind of just kind of backstroke their way through and just oh my grab them off the surface. And there are even ancient Egyptian paintings of them upside down. But now I think maybe it was just a badly drawn way <laughs> 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 up catfish. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James. At Eggshaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, you can also go to nosuchthingasafish.com where we have all of our previous episodes and also go to nosuchthingasthenews.com where we have all of our TV show episodes. We will be back again next week with another episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.